Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. My name is Klein Kitchen. I am the Senior Fellow for Technology, National Security, and Science Policy here. And I also have the extreme privilege of leading tech policy uh, for this organization. The Greek word from which we get cyber is a form of another word, which means to steer. And today we're going to be asking the question, To what future are we being steered by cyber weapons and by cyber warfare? Joining us to help answer this question is Mr. David Sanger. David is national security correspondent for the New York Times and the best-selling author of a book on today's topic, The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age. This is it. It's available for purchase right outside the door. He's also written two other books on the Obama administration's foreign policy efforts, The Inheritance and Confront and Conceal. David has also been on three Pulitzer Prize winning teams, and he teaches national security policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Please join me in welcoming Mr. David Sanger. Well, thanks very much. Thanks for having me here today. It's great to be um, back at Heritage and thank all of you for coming out on a Friday, which is, you know, always a little bit challenging because people are thinking, there's something better I can be doing with my day than (laughs) hearing about cyber conflict. But um, I'm just going to give you just my, you know, very short sort of five-minute rundown about why I wrote this this weapon, the the perfect weapon, and um, then uh, I'll really look forward to the conversation first with you and then with, with all of you. So... I've been covering cyber issues for the Times for more than a decade. Uh, I came to it as a national security correspondent. My background is pretty much in national security, though in the early, my early days at the Times, longer ago than I should probably admit, I covered the personal computer industry at its, in its early days and thus was in and out of Silicon Valley and you know, traveling around with Steve Jobs when he was bringing out the Macintosh and uh, other, other interesting adventures. Uh, I then went off to be a foreign correspondent, came back with White House correspondent for the Times, and as Chief Washington correspondent, uh, I began working on a book called The Inheritance, which was about what President Bush was leaving uh, President Obama. It came out just weeks before Obama was inaugurated. And part of that book dealt with future threats beyond Iraq, which of course was dominating all of the headlines, and Afghanistan as well. And I dealt at, at some length with Mike McConnell, the former director of national intelligence, who had been trying to get the Bush administration's heads around cyber threats. And I wrote some about that in the book, including the interesting uh, fact that I came across uh, as I was getting the book finished up, which was that President Bush had authorized the first computer attacks on Iran for its um, nuclear facilities, in part to try to slow the Iranians down, but in part to try to have a joint project with the Israelis that would keep them from bombing these facilities. I thought, well, this is pretty interesting and innovative use of cyber. I mean, on the one hand, the idea is to try to do something to the Iranians that previously you could only do with saboteurs or sending in bombers to go take out the facility, both of which would have probably started another conflict in, um, uh, in the Middle East. And uh, instead, he was trying to go do something more subtle. Now, of course, as soon as the Obama administration came in, 
Uh, there were people wandering around saying, could we do a leak investigation into the previous administration and figure out how this happened? And President Obama said, I don't really want to start my administration with a, a leak investigation. We only know this from Bob Gates's uh, memoirs, as he, as he wrote about it later on. But that attuned all of us at the Times and elsewhere to the fact that not only were we increasingly being attacked, but that the U.S was thinking in operational terms about how cyber weapons could fit into its broader national security strategy. And so in the summer of 2010, when all of a sudden we saw this new code that was flying around, which ultimately people named Stuxnet, that was not the government's name for it, it was what uh, private industry called it, um, we had pretty good suspicions that what we were seeing were the fruits of that last order that President Bush had, had issued. And indeed, after 14 months of digging through it, I found out it was part of a much larger uh, program codenamed Olympic Games that became the most sophisticated state-on-state -state, uh, uh, attack and still is pretty much. As I dug further, what I discovered was that President Obama, while he reauthorized these attacks, they would take them down in the Situation Room and lay out what they called the horse blanket, big um, graphical representation of the Natanz nuclear enrichment plant as they got him to uh, uh, approve individual uh, attacks on, uh, on this program, which was jointly done with the Israeli Unit 8200. Um, as I uh, dug into that, I discovered that President Obama had warned everybody, look, you know, we have to do this because we have to force the Iranians through sanctions and sabotage to come to the, to the bargaining table. But let's not kid ourselves. You can't keep this stuff secret forever. And when it gets out, every other country around that has, wants to use cyber weapons or is already using them against us is going to use the American engagement with cyber weapons as a justification for what they were going to go off and do anyway. And indeed, that's what happened. When I looked around in writing uh, the book that encompassed the Iran attacks, Confront and Conceal, which came out uh, during the, uh, during the 2012 uh, presidential campaign, it was hard to find another truly sophisticated cyber attack. You'd seen denial of service attacks against Estonia. You had seen a series of other attacks, but nothing state on state that really sort of made you step back and say, wow, that was pretty innovative. Right? When I began the work on the perfect weapon, and uh, with some great researchers began to dig into what had happened after Stuxnet, after Olympic Games, we stopped counting state-on-state -state attacks that had happened in the interim five or six years after we hit uh, 200 or 250. So there had been this huge explosion in the number of attacks and in the number of countries capable of executing sophisticated attacks. You could have counted those on one hand uh, when the United States did the initial uh, attacks on Iran. And now there are probably 35, maybe 40 countries capable of doing these, and four that have been extremely active, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran. The book takes you through the lessons learned in a number of these, but just to bring you down to two or three of them. Um, first. We have a perfect intelligence record when it comes to dealing with um, uh, major cyber attacks aimed at American infrastructure companies or, or the government. For the major sophisticated attacks, we have predicted and stopped zero of them, at least the ones that have become public. So um, we've got a long way to go in that regard. The second big lesson is our efforts to figure out deterrence have largely failed so far for a couple of reasons that we can go in and discuss. Part of it was the fixation on thinking about the next cyber Pearl Harbor, to use the phrase that Leon Panetta used when he was defense secretary. And I can understand why he used it. In fact, I talked to him about it, and he's quoted in the, in the book. He was trying to get Congress to understand why they needed to focus resources, attention, 
on how we do this, how we structure cyber command, how we build up NSA and so forth. But the result was a focus on this overwhelming attack to which there would probably, if it ever happened, be a military response rather than the far more subtle attacks that we're seeing day to day. And those fall into sort of four categories. The first is plain old espionage, you know, using cyber to do what otherwise you would have done before by tapping phones or stealing mail or whatever in a previous age. That's interesting. A lot of that is this, what's in the Snowden material. Um, I don't find it especially fascinating, you know, as a question of geopolitics. The second is data manipulation. That's what we're worried about when we think about what could happen to um, our uh, voting machines, what would happen if somebody got into the military's medical databases and changed the uh, the blood types of every soldier and sailor. You can imagine the chaos. What would happen if they got into the financial system and managed to change just enough digits that you could throw the entire system into chaos and undercut trust in it? The third are physical attacks, uh, where you're using a computer-connected system or what's called a SCADA system, a command and control system, to go affect real-life machinery. That was the attack on the Iranian facilities, but it was also the North Korean attack on Sony, which was in response to trying to get Sony to stop uh, distributing a, a truly bad movie, uh, um, which had uh, uh, called The Interview, which had uh, envisioned um, a couple of uh, journalists who were going in to interview Kim Jong-un and the CIA tries to sign them up to assassinate him. Having hung around in newsrooms for as many decades as I have, I can't think of a group that would be least suited to that task, but <laughs> that's another issue and another lecture. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. um, but it's also the Iranian attack on the Sands Casino in, in uh, Las Vegas after the owner of the casino, Sheldon Adelson, had once suggested ways in which you could drop nuclear weapons into the Iranian desert to send them a message. They decided to send a message first by melting down the uh, hard drives in the casino one morning. Um, a Russian attack on a German steel mill. Um, the list goes on. And of course, it's what we all worry about when we think about the, um, uh, the implants that we keep finding in our uh, power grid or the emergency response system. And then the fourth category, and the one that's fixated all of us for the past two years, is information warfare, which has got a big range to it and can, can go from just amplifying old-fashioned propaganda to the more sophisticated things we saw the Russians do uh, during the campaign. What I was trying to do in The Perfect Weapon was get people to understand that these are all on a continuum that they all re require different responses. The way the US government would deter or even respond to a hack against the utility grid is completely different than the way it would work to deter and respond to a hack uh, that was intended to basically exploit Facebook and, and so forth. The second big argument of the book is that the secrecy that we have wrapped around cyber, which is even greater than the secrecy we wrapped around nuclear weapons in, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki made it pretty clear that we had the capability, has actually gotten in the way of our ability to protect ourselves and deter future attacks. It's gotten in the way for a couple of reasons. First, by not acknowledging what our capabilities are, and defining some situations under which we would use them, even doing it loosely so you left your opponents in some doubt, we're stepping on our own ability to go impose a little bit of fear in the uh, hearts of those who might first attack us. But secondly, if we're going to set some global norms about what's off limits, if we were to sit down over lunch and say, okay, we agree, hospitals or election systems or whatever are off limits. You can't do that until you have a fairly public debate 
about what we agree as a society we're willing to forego attacking. And I'm not sure that we would forego attacking uh, electric power grids. The Perfect Weapon describes a secret program called Nitro Zeus that the U.S. developed in an effort to go unplug Iran, the entire power grid of Iran, if it looked like we were going to war with them. Instead, the 2015 uh, nuclear agreement obviously um, short-circuited the need for that, although I hear that's run into some difficulty. Uh, but, um, but there was a fairly active plan. In fact, most mil major military plans the U.S. and its adversaries have today have a big cyber component built into them. Because the hope is that if you so blind a country or turn a country off in the early moments of battle, you may never actually have to go drop a bomb. And so I could imagine if we tried to set up these kind of norms, you'd have a lot of people in the military and certainly in the intelligence community saying, wait, before we do that, let's think about what options you are taking off the table for a future president. So that's the kind of issues I've tried to deal with in the book, hopefully in a narrative way that brings you up to date with many of the people in the U.S. government who have been dealing with this, in foreign governments who have been dealing with this, in private industry as they discovered that they were the collateral damage in a war taking place 30,000 feet above their heads. So with that, I look forward to our conversation, and thanks so much for having me uh, back here to Harris. Uh, so what we'll do here is I'm going to ask a, a series of questions uh, to get this ball rolling, and then we'll open it up to uh, the audience for some additional questions. So, David, I, I want to do a couple scene setter questions, and then we'll go maybe a little deeper. Um, and you can just pull that mic right there. Um, so many Americans and certainly many politicians are used to, the, to operating under the notion of U.S. military superiority. And certainly it is the case that the American – cyber capacity and capability is significant, very capable, robust, and that kind of thing. But is it safe for Americans and U.S. policymakers to assume that those historical advantages are going to translate, you know, one for one into the cyber domain? Do we have near-peer competitors? What's the state of play from your read? extremely good capabilities, and they're aided by the fact that uh, this is a fairly easy and cheap kind of technology to put together. And that's why, it's one of the reasons that I call the book The Perfect Weapon, because if you think about the attributes of a cyber weapon, they're very inexpensive. You can dial them up and dial them down. You can calibrate them to avoid a military response, which is pretty much what's happened. I mean, the Russians rightly calculated that nobody was going to be starting a war over um, Facebook posts or even necessarily getting into state registration systems. The Chinese rightly calculated that they could take off with 22 million security clearances, probably including yours, right, and that the worst thing the U.S. government would do would be to send you a nice notice saying, don't worry, we've given you a year of free credit protection, as if what the Chinese were doing was trying looking for your credit card number to go buy some car batteries at Sears. Uh, you know, in fact, they were building together a huge database of who worked on what in the U.S. government, or at least as best we can tell, that's what they were doing. The North Koreans figured nobody was going to go to war because they actually took out 70% of, of Sony's um, computing systems. But had they sent commandos to Long Beach and put them in an Uber up to the studio and put them on the studio tour and stuck dynamite under the Sony Computer Center and you turned on CNN and you saw smoke rising over the Hollywood Hills, I suspect probably something would have blown up, right, in Pyongyang. I don't think any American president, Democrat, Republican, Martian, could have avoided showing that you were going to retaliate to an act of visible terrorism. But the worst they got for an act of invisible terrorism 
was some sanctions that they probably never felt. So you are seeing more countries move up to not necessarily peer competition, but near peer competition. And that's going to continue because to get nuclear weapons, you need millions or billions of dollars and big facilities and plutonium and uranium. And to do cyber weapons, you need some teenagers and some 20-somethings and some stolen code from the NSA. There seems to be a lot of that floating around. And, uh, you know, um, maybe uh, a, a case or two of Red Bull to stay awake, and, and you're good to go. Great. Uh, so what, what is the role of the private sector, right? So uh, you, 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 we've mentioned Sony, and we know that um, Facebook has just recently talked about um, a mass uh, significant loss of, of information. We don't know if that was state back. A, a vulnerability, but we don't know how much they lost. Right. Or if they lost anything at all. Right. Yeah. Potentially mm -hmm. tens of millions of records uh, mm -hmm. at stake. Um, and certainly the private sector in general has, has been a key target for a host of different actors. So as you've, as you've done your research, as you've thought about this, what is the role, if any, that you think the private sector is going to play, not only in just kind of defending critical infrastructure and that kind of thing, but perhaps in enabling the government to win and thrive in cyber warfare? So this is one of the great mysteries of the cyber age because it's what separates this conflict out from the Cold War. In the Cold War, the government had all the major sensors, right? So you could go into a big cave in Colorado Springs and if there were uh, ICBMs launched against the United States, you'd see it up on the screen. And our biggest worry were, the false reports, right? And then the government knew there was a limited number of actors here that could reach us, you know, Russia and a handful of others, mostly just China during most of the Cold War. And that's why they could devise a response. In cyber, there's no cave to go into. If you see the attack rising up on the screen, it probably is going to look like well, like one of the attacks on the New York Times that the Chinese launched, which looked like it was coming from a university in the southern United States. Well, of course, that was just the last hop before they came up into, into our systems. Um, the third problem that uh, the government runs into is that it does not necessarily possess um, the only means of retribution. And this is why the big issue of hacking back has come up. Google was tempted to hack back against the Chinese in 2009 in a big attack, the Aurora attack on, on Google. Um, they were stopped from doing that. The problem if you get companies beginning to go respond is that the nation that is at the receiving end of the response isn't going to know, was this the government that just melted down our server? Was it a private company? Was it a private company working for the government? Was it a couple of uh, guys on lunch break from the company and the company themselves didn't know? So you begin to run into all of these other issues. And then the last thing is that the detection system tends to be as good or better in private industry as it is in government. So we were talking about this uh, um, before we came out here, but. You know, if there's a big hack that happens, the two of us tend to call our friends in private industry who are watching domestic networks before we'd call somebody in the U.S. government because they're much more likely to see this unfolding. So people keep talking about the information sharing as if it is, you know, can the government share all this data with the private industry? The bigger issue is, what's private industry willing to go share with the government? And on what real-time basis are they willing to do it? And in some cases, are many of these companies unwilling to do it at all because of their concerns, as you've seen from Google engineers in recent times, that they don't want to be part of uh, the new military cyber complex? Yeah, in the post-Snowden world, that conversation became much more complex. It sure did. And in the book, I take you into a unit of Google that I went to visit right after Snowden because Google was shocked to discover, 
except those people who were, had been tuned into the intelligence agencies, that the U.S. government had gone in between in the lines that connected two Google servers or big server stations overseas so that they could basically um, intercept messages between foreigners across these Google lines. And Google did not know about it or said it did not know about it. So they were in a rush to lock down their systems and encrypt everything to protect themselves against the U.S. government and protect their, their customer base against the U.S. government um, as much as against foreign governments. And that's another big difference in the, in the Cold War, that the American technology base in the Cold War, Raytheon or uh, Boeing or any of the other big contractors, they were, had a huge amount of revenue that came from the U.S. government. It was clear what team they were going to be on. For most of the firms that are profiting the most in uh, this new connected world, most of their customers are not Americans. Because you may notice we're a pretty small portion of the, of the world population. And as a result, they've got to actually show their independence from the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so for example, Facebook, 82% of individuals on Facebook are outside of the United States. Uh, and that's a major factor for them. And I just, I want to pull that string just a little bit more before we go on to something else. So when, when you see uh, countries like China who deliberately use uh, kind of compulsory economic policy, if you want access to our market, you have to turn over IP and that kind of thing. Um, is it the case that there are actors on the world stage, not the U.S., who actually aren't going to allow companies like Google to be neutral? Can they be neutral, actually? I don't. I think it's becoming increasingly difficult for them uh, to be neutral. So um, you may have seen on uh, Wednesday that the um, Trump administration announced new and I think long overdue rules for an incredibly um, bureaucratic-sounding process in the U.S. called CFIUS. It's the Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States, which until now had just focused on the question of what do you do when China or another foreign nation wants to buy more than 50%, a controlling interest in a U.S. company. And we had all of these rules built around protecting our technology that were designed in a pre-internet age. And so now it's much easier since Wednesday to go look at what happens when they buy a minority share or set up a venture capital firm on Sand Hill Road in Palo Alto and uh, look to um, uh, just um, fund startups and get a real good look at their technology or joint ventures that may do all that. But that's just the beginning because while we're putting together those rules, the Chinese are putting together and the Russians rules that basically require you to store in China any of the data that you're, connect you're collecting from Chinese citizens, which means that we're putting it there in a system where we know there is not Western-style legal process for whether or not the government can go in and get it. And one of the interesting contradictions that... Um, uh, Google and Microsoft and, and uh, Facebook and others are having to confront is how do you go comply with those rules and yet still resist the U.S. government on issues of encryption? And I think my own personal view is uh, the government needs to be pushed back because uh, I think we need to encrypt just about everything we can for all the reasons we lay out and uh, describe in the book. But they are really caught because governments are not going to allow you to be neutral. They're going to say, if you're going to do business in our country, you're going to store your data here and turn it over when we ask you to. Yeah, the problem of data localization. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's peculiar because you know, Google just recently um, withdrew from the competition for um, the Department of Defense's cloud contract. That's right. And one of the, one of the things I found, which is they're right, as a private company, they can compete and not compete on whatever they like. Um, but it was interesting to me, the rationale that they put out was that they had concerns that if they had won the contract and then fulfilled the contract, they were no longer sure that that would not violate their 
principles about how artificial intelligence and other technologies are being used by the government. And I think a lot of people look at that in the context of some of their engagement with China and I think have questions. That's right. I mean, it's one thing to say we're not an American company, we are an international company, and therefore we, we can't go do this. But obviously, if you store your data in China and somebody who disagrees with the Chinese government is expressing themselves or communicating over those networks, and you have stored it there because the Chinese are making you do it so they can get at it, you are at least complicit in the Chinese going after their own group of dissidents. Uh, so uh, you made the alarming, I think, but correct uh, observation that, that U.S. intelligence is essentially zero for zero, uh, or excuse me, batting, batting zero, on um, some of the major hacks from state-sponsored uh, groups, uh, at least the ones that we know about. That's right. Um, what do you, in your, in your investigation and in your writing, have you discovered what are some of the key deficiencies of what in the intelligence community we would call indications and warning? The, the idea of kind of seeing attacks coming and then being able to warn about them. Why is that, why is that not working? Well, you know, in Pearl Harbor, the problem was that the radar was built but turned off. In this case, the radar hasn't been built for some very good reasons. First of all, there are privacy concerns in the United States, so you don't want the U.S. government roaming around in networks that you're using or businesses are using or that you're communicating with. And that was sort of the core of the Snowden revelations, at least what Snowden said he was doing. I don't think it's actually what he did much of, but what he, he said he was doing was revealing some domestic programs. And in that regard, he was partially successful because programs that President Obama had approved each year uh, that included the NSA collecting but not necessarily looking at the metadata from every phone call made in the United States, he ended after it was revealed. Right? Now, we can argue about whether that program was terribly useful. Most people in the NSA thought it should have been ended years before because it was a waste of money. But that's a separate, a separate question. Um, because the intelligence agencies, with the, uh, all the foreign intelligence agencies, and the NSA in particular, are prohibited from operating inside the United States, the only way that they can actually see this stuff massing is by putting implants in foreign systems around the world so that they can look and see if an attack is coming together. Well, that's fine. Except when we see implants in our power grid, we say, oh my God, the Russians are getting ready to turn off all the power between Boston and Washington. What are we going to do? How are we going to get them out of the system? And when I said before that there would be trouble putting together global norms, supposing you put together a norm that said, thou shalt not put implants of malware or potential malware in foreign government systems. Well, you might as well close down Fort Meade and send everybody home. Right, if you do, if that's the rule. Yeah. yeah, so in the cyber realm, the, the distinctions between offense and defense are often lost because if you can observe, then theoretically you can attack. And so... Um, you know, the analogy I give to this is a doctor who puts a port in a patient, right? Uh, and, you know, that port can be used to draw blood and see what's going on, and it can be used to inject chemotherapy. And it's just a question of which direction you're using the same device for. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, what cyber-related developments, cyber war, cybersecurity, whatever your flavor, uh, developments are you anticipating of significance in the next two to three years? How do you think this, where do we go next? Well, it's an interesting question. So we're not seeing a huge amount of Russian activity and so forth in the 2016 election, despite all of the warnings. That kind of makes sense to me because a midterm election is really hard to hack into, right? Because you've got 460, 470 candidates. Can you imagine you're the, you know, the, the poor guy sent off in Russia to go sit down and figure out, so in third district in Missouri, this. <laughs> Is she is she good for us or bad for us? Right, you know. Right? So, um, so I think what you're going to see in the midterm is Russia and other countries observing, practicing, thinking about new and different things they could do in the coming presidential election. Mm -hmm. 
because clearly they can't run the same plays they ran in 2016. We'll be ready for that. Facebook's already announced that you know they're going to begin to try to identify at least roughly regionally where posts are coming from so that if you see a Facebook post for secession in Texas, you have a little warning that says, I realize this looks like it comes from your neighbor down the street in Dallas, but actually it was put together in St. Petersburg. That would be Russia, not Florida, mm -hmm. right? And uh, so um, there are a lot of different warning signs we'll be ready for, which means that the other side's going to have to innovate along the way. One of the other big mysteries is how does President Trump's new executive order, which he signed in um, August, which devolves power down to Cyber Command, to the NSA, so that they don't need presidential authorization for each and every attack. How does that actually play out in reality? It may not be that big a difference. Paul Nakasone, the general who's now running NSA, has uh, you know, done this for a long time, very cautious, very good at what he does. I'm not sure you're going to see the U.S. unleashed in a big way. But, uh, but that's the next big issue. And then the third thing is, how do we respond to future cyber attacks? I'm pretty critical in the book of the Obama administration for not calling out the Russians for their attacks on the White House, the State Department, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Because if Vladimir Putin didn't think he was going to pay a price for going into the White House, why would he possibly pay a price for going into the Democratic National Committee building a few blocks from here? Uh, which is, you know, largely staffed by college kids and not an official government organization. And so one of the things that I we saw at the end of the Obama administration and you've seen accelerated in the Trump administration is calling countries out earlier. And I think that's good. The question is, are they embarrassable? Right. Yeah, it, it's based on the presupposition that they can be embarrassed. Or and I'm not sure in the case of Vladimir Putin that, you know, the evidence that that he moderates his behavior because he gets caught is kind of scarce right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and not just in cyber. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to ask one more question, then we're going to open it up to the audience. And, and this question is, you know, yeah, I, I, I kind of want to get, um, I, I want to get, I want to get negative just for a second and, and ask like, what is your worst case yet still believable scenario that you think is, is a, is a real possibility it can be remote, but real, over the next three to five years in terms of how bad things could really get. Sure. So I said at the beginning, I don't think you're going to see a big cyber Pearl Harbor because that would defeat the purpose of what cyber weapons are most useful for, which is calibrating something not to bring out a military response. The most effective cyber attacks we have seen, like Olympic Games, have left the recipient of the attack wondering, was I just attacked or did we just screw up? I mean, they, they fired a lot of, uh, of centrifuge engineers in, uh, in Iran because they thought their centrifuges were badly built and that's why they were blowing up before they figured out that actually the U.S. and the Israelis had put code in. So what worries me the most for the next three to five years is the data manipulation hard to detect kind of attack, which you could imagine taking place in the financial realm, in the utility realm. You could imagine it certainly taking place in medical information. There's a lot of chaos to be created. Even think of what the Russians were doing when they were downloading the outward facing registration uh, uh, data there. They didn't do anything with that that we can find in the 2016 election. But it's not hard to figure out what you do with that data, you know? We, you know, you'd go to the polling place and they'd look at it and they'd say, well, thanks very much, Mr. Kitchen, but my, rec my record here shows that you moved to Arizona three months ago and you're no longer eligible to vote, you know, at this polling place. And you say, I didn't move to Arizona. Well, the record's right here. So you can imagine, done on the broad scale, what kind of chaos that could create on Election Day. We'd probably sort it out sooner or later. But that was the fear the Obama administration had. 
Because at the time you had President Trump, then candidate Trump, saying that you know the fix is in, someone's messing with this. And the fear inside the White House was that Hillary Clinton would be declared a winner, but that Donald Trump would be able to challenge that by noting the number of potentially changed ballots or more likely people who were kept from, from voting. That didn't turn out that way in both regards. Uh, Hillary Clinton didn't win, I read. And, uh, and, and we did not see cases where people got turned away for, for reasons that we thought were cyber-related. But boy, the opportunity for chaos is pretty great. And I think one of the big lost opportunities of the past two years is that we didn't have a 9-11-style commission that basically said, what are all the lessons we can learn from the 2016 election and make sure we get X done by 2018, but Y done by the next presidential election. And instead, we spent you know a year with a commission that was looking for 3 million lost votes that it turned out weren't lost. <laughs> and on the data manipulation, we've actually seen the Russians doing this on the battlefield. So at one point, Ukrainian soldiers were using an app, a phone app, uh, to do uh, geolocation for um, artillery. And uh, the Russians got a hold of that and manipulated the data and were uh, moving the artillery shots uh, through that. So Not only that, but they were using the, the app to identify the units. the units and where they were located because people were using and then to shell those. Yeah. Uh, so you actually lost a fair number of, uh, lost a fair number of Ukrainian soldiers in the course of that. So, I mean, this is not theoretical. It's, it's very, very real already. Um, thank you. Awesome. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to turn to the audience. We have got uh, two microphones that are going to be circulating. Uh, just a couple of uh, quick caveats as, as these things go. Uh, one, if you would just identify yourself briefly. Uh, two, if you'd please ask a question. Uh, we have an opportunity to have David here, uh, and I'm sure you have very interesting thoughts, and we would like to hear those perhaps afterwards. But what we're wanting to do is, is give David a chance to respond to specific questions. So if you could ask those quickly and concisely, that would be great. Let me start here. Two very good questions. Um, so first of all, Richard Clark, who wrote a great book ahead of its time, uh, at, at, at that time, is in this book because um, the DNC brought him in, in before the 2016 election cycle to give a quick, you know, take a look. He now runs a, a consulting firm here in town to take a look. And they asked the consulting firm, can you um, uh, look and see what our vulnerabilities are? And they came back with pages upon pages because basically the DNC was just wide open. I mean, you know, there was an FBI official who in the book describes the DNC as wandering around like Bambi in the woods full of hunters, you know, I mean, had no chance against the Russians, none. Uh, anyway, Richard's firm turned out a big list of the things they needed to do. They looked at it. They got the sticker shock that all of you get when you bring your car in for a minor repair, and they, they come back and you know mention to you that your engine needs to be overhauled, right? And they said, thanks, we'll do this after the election. We have to put all our money into the election. Well, that doesn't look like sort of the best um, investment decision that, uh, that they've made. Um, so attribution has gotten a lot better uh, and a lot quicker. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that it's not as fast as the attribution when you see that incoming missile. So, you know, there's a big attack. And the first thing the president wants to know is who did this so that we can retaliate. And if you come in in day one or day two and say, um, sir, based on the available evidence, we think there's a 65% chance this was the Chinese. Well, you're not going to go retaliate 
on the thought that you have a 35% chance that you hit the wrong country. Second, we have already seen, and you see this in some of the indictments that have been turned out in recent times against the Chinese, against the Russians, and all that, that they will make good use of independent hackers who are working for the state. But it takes a while to sort out the murky question of, is this person working on their own for a company, or do they quietly have a contract or an understanding with the PLA or with the GRU in Russia? or whatever. So that can be difficult to sort out. One of the things that hasn't happened, the dog that hasn't barked here so far, has been significant use of cyber by terrorists. ISIS used it for recruiting, but they didn't really use it for doing many attacks. And one of the reasons for that is to do a good cyber attack, you need patience. You need to sort of stay in one place, do your implants as the North Koreans did at Sony, watch it for months as you try to map out a system. Terrorists don't usually like sitting in one place for a few months. It's bad for their health. Yeah. Hi, Carl Golovin, a retired special agent, U.S. Customs, 9-11 responder, domain reference, and ideal lives on .net. This is really a follow-up question to the one just asked, which is to clarify the concept of false flag terrorism. In the physical sense, so where allied interests are a third party and might precipitate an event that then could be blamed on their preferred enemy, other than those who seemingly uh, carried it out. In the false flag sense, rather than a Pearl Harbor, what about a, a cyber false flag USS Liberty? 1967, there was an attack on USS Liberty, a NSA ship off in the Mediterranean, yep. seemingly intended to bring the US into the war against perceived enemies of Israel. What if... Uh, uh, interested parties were to create a cyber attack on the U.S. seemingly coming out of Iran, but maybe Iran really didn't cause it. Maybe an interested third party caused it to appear as if it came from Iran. It, entirely possible. It's one of the reasons you've got to get the attribution side of this up and running and so good, because between now and then, uh, there are going to be a lot of people thinking about how to go do that. I've had cases that we pursued where we thought the Russians were responsible for I'm thinking of a series of financial hacks that took place uh, uh, in the U.S. a few years ago, and it turned out that they were wrong, you know, couldn't do that. Um, sometimes you're just seeing the metadata, so you're not seeing the content of a message, and as a result, you can't quite figure out what the intent is. So you might have the, the assailant right and what's going on wrong. Um, so each of these are, you know, the things that keep people at the NSA and Cyber Command awake at night and keep novelists very busy. Uh, I don't know if any of you have had a chance yet. I, one, of the, one of the few pleasures of the summer is I finally got a chance to go read some like novels because I was finished with this. And if you go through the, um, the Bill Clinton, James Patterson you know, novel, The President is Missing, it's got some false flag cyber stuff built right into it. So this has already moved on to novels and the screen even before <coughs> reality has completely caught up with it. Hello, my name is Shreya. I am a student at Clemmer McKenna College, and I'm currently on a DC program with my cohort. Um, so you mentioned a lot about the US creating norms and the fact that norms haven't been firmly established, and the fact that the US is currently a leader um, in not only military and economic uh, power, but also in a building up cybersecurity. So my question is um, particularly on China building norms in terms of data localization um, and the fact that countries like India are currently creating uh, draft legislation that also includes data localization. Um, so my question is, how do you see the world um, choosing norms? Are they going to choose it based on an interconnected system uh, with the EU at the forefront, for example, GDPR, which doesn't have data localization norms, or um, more state-centered, national, secu national security-centered norms like China and data localization? Uh, well, first, congratulations for um, living out the, the dream that all the rest of us have, because every time I'm out at the Claremont McKenna campus, I always think this looks like, you know, 
why did I why did I go to school on the freezing East Coast? You know, <laughs> seems seems pretty nice out there. I couldn't persuade my kids to apply, but but uh, but anyway, it seems great. So you've raised a really interesting question because while we're sitting around debating these norms and there's been a UN group of experts that began to put out some of these norms two years ago, they sort of ran out of they ran out of road about a year ago, partly because the Chinese and the Russians. Uh, took that away, and partly because the U.S. couldn't figure out what it wanted. Um, so what's happening in the interim is that you're, the, the Internet's getting balkanized, right? The Chinese have a Chinese equivalent of Facebook. They don't really want the real Facebook there. They've got a Chinese equivalent of Google, obviously, that's you know as big and increasingly quite good. Um, uh, so... They don't see a particular need, and they see a lot of disadvantages to having an internet that is unfiltered and connected to the rest of the world. That's what the Great Wall is all about, right? The Russians have learned this. And what's really interesting is now as you go through the Middle East, people have begun to learn this as well. You know, if you think that the, the height of sort of um, the internet, the, of the, the fantasy that the internet was going to democratize the world was sort of 2011 in the middle of the Arab Spring. And we're sitting there admiring, you know, all these kids in Tahrir Square who are organizing the protests over Facebook and Messenger and, you know, all of these other uh, apps. And then it turns out that authoritarians have figured out that this technology can be hijacked by them to be used much more efficiently and the protesters have figured it out. And that while um, the internet's great for helping bring down governments, it's not really good for building up new and particularly democratic ones. So um, what's happened now is that this problem's gonna become infinitely harder to solve because you have individual countries that are basically um, wiring a domestic internet and then controlling the gateway to everybody else. It's the exact opposite of what our vision was that the internet would bring about, that it would actually bring people in different societies at different levels of freedom, different economic status together. Hi, uh, my name is Sid. Uh, I'm a student from UC Berkeley also on a semester program in D.C. Uh, my question is um, about the offensive capabilities of the United States. Um, of the four sort of operational um, tactics that you described, espionage, data manipulation, physical attacks, information warfare, um, which is the United States most capable in and uh, which do we have the most to work on? Um, well, first of all, do you notice that all of the college students here come in the fall and then they flee back to, to <laughs> California, you know, as, as soon as the, uh, uh, yeah, I, I think we missed something out here. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so we've done espionage for years and years. I mean, the NSA was created as a code-breaking espionage collection operation. We do offense pretty well the Tailored Access Operations Unit, or what used to be called the Tailored Access Operations Unit of the NSA, was meant to and designed to go break into uh, foreign computer systems. And uh, there were a lot of tales in here of how they did that. They also ended up losing most of their weapons to a group called the Shadow Brokers that we have not entirely figured out in a breach that was far worse than anything that happened with Snowden. Snowden revealed the names and designs of programs. This actually revealed the code. So that makes you wonder, you know, are we as effective now as we were before the shadow brokers breach? Now, none of these codes, none of these weapons last forever. So, you know, they have to get regenerated at various moments. But uh, that has certainly cut, cut into that some. Our biggest restriction that we face are our own laws and ethics, right? I mean, when, when a cyber weapon gets designed in the United States, it's immediately um, you know, reviewed by teams and teams of lawyers. When we picked apart the Stuxnet code when it got out, 
What did we discover in it? A time limit, a date by which the entire code expired. Because the lawyers at the NSA did not want the cyber equivalent of unexploded landmines sitting around that could go off in the future. So it was used for a limited period of time. That was part of saying it's a proportional weapon. It's directed at a certain target. And that way, if it got out into the wild, as it did, it would drop dead at some point and not be an issue. Now, that also helps identify where it was done, because you know teenagers don't tend to put expiration dates into their into their uh, into their malicious code, right? Lawyers put expiration. Right? The Russians and the Chinese have much shorter lawyer meetings than we do, um, and uh, so to some degree, we could do a lot of things that our own laws and following the, the laws of conflict keep us from doing. Our biggest vulnerability, though, and I, I, you'll see a lot of people quoted in the, in the book, including James Clapper, who's written a very interesting book of his own, uh, noted recently. Uh, the biggest problem that we uh, run into is that you can't use your offense if your defense is so wide open that you would fear getting on an escalation ladder that you couldn't get off. And that's what happened in the debate, which you see played out in the book, uh, inside the White House in 2016, as President Obama said, well, if we do this to the Russians, you know, cut them off from the world financial system, expose Putin's connections to the oligarchs, what happens if they come back on election day? How vulnerable is our election infrastructure to them? And what he was essentially saying was, I can't use these weapons until you can assure me that you've sealed up the American system. And I'm not sure the American system's sealable. Hi, my name is Michael. I work for the Senate Republican Policy Committee. Um, given the projected rise of China in the next 25 years in, turn of, in terms of economic, technological, and military hard power, what is the likelihood that the acceleration of cyber attacks will bring us into a conflict? Um, a lot of the uh, examples that you've, you've noted are proportional responses that haven't brought us into a, a direct conflict yet. What is the odd or the, the prospect that we reach a tipping point in which the accelerated uh, attacks bring us into a conflict? That's a very good question. There are a couple of models here. One model is that we do our cyber stuff and they do their cyber stuff. And that's kind of like in the early days of air power where people were imagining air wars taking place completely separate from traditional ground wars. And I, as I was working on this book, I ran across um, uh, uh, a great book written in Britain in about 1912, which I finally found an old copy of in a bookstore called um, Aeroplanes in Peace and War, and asked questions like, could Britain be bombed from the air? Well. By the time the second edition of that book came out, we pretty well answered the question. <laughs> okay? But the, the idea in the book, as you read it, was that somehow air power was going to be separate from every other kind of traditional conflict that Europe had seen. And of course, while that was a little bit true in, in World War I, even there you saw some merger, by World War II, it was just completely integrated with every other form of power. So you'd go in and you'd strafe, and then you'd send in your you know, the, the, the troops would land aboard ships, and it was all worked in, okay? Cyber's pretty much already there, where there is cyber built into our and every one of our major adversaries' plans already. So if we got into a conflict with the Chinese, it might start looking like a cyber conflict, but then it might blind our space assets, and that could be a prelude to some kind of action at sea, where the Chinese would be much more willing to go act if they thought we couldn't see them or direct our own weapons through the space assets. So the biggest concern I have going out in the next few years is what starts like a cyber conflict may not be intended by the adversary to remain simply in the cyber realm. And that's what gets you up your escalation ladder because you say, oh my God, they're not just going after cyber, they're going out, this is the beginning of a much broader attack. And I think that's the biggest fear. 
And it's the biggest concern in not having much communication, not only between the U.S. military and the Chinese military, but between the U.S. cyber forces and the Chinese cyber forces, because we don't understand each other's doctrine. And in some cases, we may not yet, or they may not have yet fully have a doctrine. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Thank it was a you. pleasure. Um, everyone, I highly recommend picking up this book, and we've made it very easy for you. We have several copies just outside of here. David, if you've got a couple of minutes to sign books. Yes, I will. Certainly. We'll just be up here. You can purchase your book, bring it up, have a quick conversation with David, and he'll be happy to sign it. Uh, let's all thank David one more time.